some would say that we're we're putting them into a whole new atmosphere. We're taking them off this world. We're training our listeners to be astronauts. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to the Off the Top Podcast. I'm your host, Julian. Jordan, how are things uh, doing on your end? Dude, they're awesome, man. Out of this world, some would say. I think uh, our listeners are in for a treat today. From a lot of the research we've done in the past, today's topic on astronauts was actually really fun to look into and see kind of how you become an astronaut and some of the effects it has on the body that I wasn't really aware of. I just kind of thought of astronauts as, I don't know, mythical creatures or right, but just people were just astronauts and I never really thought about how they got there. I think there was a lot of that for on my end as well. And the fact that they're kind of like this, a little bit of a mystery. Everyone knows about them as a kid. That's like one of the most popular things that you want to grow up and do. But in the sense of like, you know, having a real world like, oh, this is what an accounting does and looks like. There's no, this is what an astronaut does and like looks like. So I think that this is, first off, a really good podcast for good information. And also, like you said, a fun research as well. Yeah. And one of the things I found when first jumping into the astronaut world was that astronaut actually came from the Greek word, words of astro and knots, which meant star sailor, which I don't know why we're calling them astronauts and we should be calling them star sailors because to me, that is such a cooler job title then astronaut be like, oh, what do you do? I'm just a star sailor, man. You know, just sailing the stars, doing my thing. Yeah, that sounds way, way better. It almost sounds like some sort of guard, Guardians of the Galaxy-esque <laughs> type, like, role name, star sailor. I, I dig it, for sure. I agree. Yeah, and these star sailors, there's thousands of a- applicants, which we'll get to here shortly. And typically, there's two types, right? You have military applicants and civilian applicants. Um, And that's pretty straightforward on, you know, their background and where they're coming from. And that's the first thing that jumped out to me is seeing that there's obviously two paths to get there. And they have, you know, kind of different qualifications that help these, you know, military or civilian applicants get to being these astronauts. Exactly. And so you kind of have like what Julian's saying, the dichotomy of, you know, your military experience going into it and then your civilian experience going into it. And they pull from both pools like pretty regularly or reliably when they do like have openings. And another thing that they look for too with those same pools is how educated you are, like what your degree is in, because it is a minimum to have a college bachelor degree in something. And that specifically would be in the field of like STEM or like in basically the required like bachelor degrees could be engineering, biological science, physical science, mathematics. And then there's a few exceptions like geography or even aviation management in there that you can like, you know, get to the next level with that bachelor's degree. And that's one of the things that I never really thought about of, you know, what type of degrees do these astronauts have? I always, once again, came back to like astronauts, are just astronauts. And it makes a lot of sense being in this STEM field that that's the education you need to kind of understand the job title and the job description of what you'll be doing. And that's why often that these astronauts typically have a master's or a PhD in these fields, where some of them have multiple degrees in various different STEM areas, which makes you could imagine that applicant field 
very, very qualified and probably really difficult to choose from. Exactly. So I want to break it down in the numbers and then give you the percentages of who has what. So in 2017, it was a good year for NASA when it comes to applicants. There was about 18,300 people who applied for their 14 or fewer spots in the NASA, like in NASA's next astronaut class. And just for just kind of like a other record that they had before, which is amazing how much like this has grown in about 1978, the record was 8,000 applicants. So that obviously is a huge jump in leap over what the previous record was. And out of those, basically, when they get to choose you, which we'll talk about that process too, about the 257 astronauts that have been over like the years that have gotten chosen, you'll see a chance of like 0.6 to be selected out of your application group. And of course, the non-pilots and the civilians who have completed their master's have about a 38.9 chance, or that's basically the, the density of like what the non-civilian or civilian master's holders like are made of. And then the PhDs are really closely following that up is about 38.3%. And then the pilots of the pilots selected 52% had their master's degree and 43% only a bachelor's degree. Yeah, and that, that's a great breakdown to show, you know, I'll look at one of the bigger numbers here in that 52% of the selected pilots have a master's degree, um, showing that that education is valued very highly in that system. And there's other some other qualifications that they look at, such as, you know, you'll need up to three years of experience in that related field or related work very similar to other jobs, but something in, you know, this kind of astronaut and space involvement, along with, you know, on the military side, you'll need up to a thousand hours of pilot in command time in a jet aircraft. So there's a few different things coming to play here. And what I take away from this is, you know, Jordan said um, a little over 18,000 people applied. I've never met anyone who knows anyone who applied to be an astronaut. So once again, it comes down to a very, very small amount of people are applying, but those that small group of people is very, very qualified to at least have an opportunity to become a candidate. Exactly. Honestly, Julian, I thought it would be way, way bigger as far as like who doesn't want to be an astronaut. But maybe it's also the fact that, you know, who has the requirements to be an astronaut and then who has the desire to as well. And I wanted to, before you jump in, I wanted to talk about this really interesting story because a lot of you people I'm sure are thinking like, shoot, like, so, you know, the chances of me getting in with a bachelor's degree is pretty small. And I, you know, I have to get a master's degree. It's better if I get a PhD. You know, there's a lot of hurdles to jump and we haven't even talked about the physical ones yet. But uh, I found a really, really cool story about Clay Anderson, who was a NASA space astronaut. And basically, he wrote a book and he described his time becoming or the application process of being an astronaut. And this guy failed 14 times before the 15th time when he was accepted as an astronaut. So, I mean, there are <laughs> situations where and NASA does encourage people to apply and apply again, just because 
it's such a tight, tight window that even if you're more than qualified and can do the job, you might not be accepted. But if you have persistence, like Clay Anderson did, you you can make it up there. It's truly phenomenal to think, you know, some of the qualifications, just in education alone, that these candidates need to have for this guy being, you know, trying 14 times to get shut down and on the 15th time get an opportunity must have been, you know, a phenomenal feeling for him and kind of, you know, somewhat of a relief as think about, you know, if you know anyone with their master's or their PhD, I find it hard to believe that someone with that level of education is getting denied 14 times before getting the job um, in the field they'd like to go on and, you know, create a career out of. Exactly. And can you imagine like, you know, the way that Clay's friends were and his parents were like reacting to this? Like, oh, Clay, Clay is applying again. Like, okay, like best of luck. But, you know, what I think that's also like, you know, a cool story on his end being like so persistent. And I feel like it kind of paints the picture. Granted, it's almost a caricature of the application process, but I think it also shows you that it's just like an insanely competitive and insanely high requirement to meet this bar as far as getting into the program. And then it just goes up from there. And Julian, I want to talk about a little bit of the physical requirements too. Tell our listeners about that stuff. One, I'm going to say this is the part where I got slightly upset at, right? I did not know it makes sense, but I did not know there was a height a selected height range you have to be in. And that is 62 inches or five foot one to 75 inches, which is 6'2". And luckily for me, I'm right on that line at 6'2". But for my co-host Jordan, like he could have all the qualifications in the world and be outside of that height range um, as one of the physical requirements that they look at, at while screening candidates. Whoa, dude. All right, so you got to... Are we being real here? <laughs> I read that too. And I was, yeah, I was pretty upset. But in the instance of like, I now understand how extremely like stringent it is to be an astronaut that I probably would fudge a little bit into the numbers <laughs> to say, I'm just kind of like a really broad and burly six foot two, <laughs> maybe even given the six foot two and a half and then see if I could sneak in. But along with the height requirement, there's also like, so you have to have 20-20 vision, but that could be allowed with glasses too. So that's fine. And another thing too, is that your blood pressure cannot be more than 140 over 90 in a sitting position, as well as being in extremely good shape and flexible. And I, I think to, to what Jordan was saying, it, why this physical por portion is so important to them is one, I'm not going to begin down the rabbit hole. But the math, you know, to send an astronaut or a star sailor into space is incredible. Those variances in one inch to two inches and the weight differences and, you know, the different velocities and angles and calculations and everything that I don't know too much about is probably um, substantial when you start getting bigger astronauts or if they're too small or you have to, you know, build the rocket essentially to make sure that this astronaut is going to be the right fit and making sure that, you know, when they go into space, their blood pressure um, isn't going to affect them and that they're able to see to make these changes and make sure everything is in a line the way they need it to be. 
and be able to, you know, move through kind of a weird weightless gravity state in a small space station. Exactly. I think that you pointed the painted the picture really well in the fact of, you know, it takes a lot and there's a lot to be expected from you. I mean, not only are these people like being trained in how to work around and move in space and what like the physics are and everything like that and how to work the space shuttle, but they also taught in things like dentistry and mechanical engineering and things of that nature. So like if you have certain things, let's say that you get you're the smoker or you have like bad teeth, those things are huge risk to basically a space mission. And the fact of if you have like an emergency root canal that you need to do and you can't operate the space station well, they NASA thinks that this is probably not a good candidate in the fact of that the jeopardy of risking this mission is much higher with this person compared to another. So that's another thing to think about when you think and consider about like, wow, these these kind of requirements are pretty stringent. It's also because that there is a lot playing into the success of the mission with your team, everything like that. And another thing I want to mention too that I found is with the European Space Agency, the ESA, this isn't with NASA particularly because there is no age requirement for NASA, but the ESA basically has a preference, and I'm putting that in quotes, of people aged from 27 to 37. And so on top of all of that other NASA stuff, you also have to be lucky in the fact that, you know, you just have to might be at the perfect timing. So, you know, you happen to be 28 when the application opens, or you happen to be like 30. And if you miss that tight, tight window, because there's not a lot of time to apply, then Some of the things that Jordan touched on there, and you apply that to what we talked to earlier about, about NASA's application, about 18,000 people. Realistically, when you put in all of these factors of being in great shape, having perfect vision, good blood pressure, you know, being in a preferable age range, a height really narrows it down even further to where there's probably realistically at any given time or any given applicant size, there's probably only a hundred people who fit perfectly in there. But if you're lucky enough and you're one of those hundred people that fit perfectly in there, then you get selected. Once you get selected, you don't, you know, go to the International Space Station right away. Typically there's, you know, a wait time before you're put onto a mission or sent into space. You do some things in the meantime to make sure you're prepared and diligent with your work when you get the opportunity. Exactly. I mean, there is a lot of prep time and training beforehand. And another thing, too, is we kind of talked about the education physical side, but there's also a psychological side. So if you're applying, anticipate when you get further on in the road that you will be uh, required to take psychological tests to see like kind of personality traits and how you deal with pressure. But talking about the training that Julian was mentioning there is some really, really interesting training. And I just want to touch on first the training that I feel like people don't really know about, but you must know Russian if you are going to be an astronaut. And the reason why is because the ISS has this almost like Russian side. 
So you'll have buttons that are in Russian or, you know, only instructions in Russian or dealing with, you know, your your Russian coworkers to deal with. So that's one thing that I found like pretty interesting is that there, you know, you don't also have to be like technologically and educationally like on point, but you also have to speak some Russian, which I found like pretty cool. I saw that too and found it super interesting. And I also noticed that during this down, not I want to say downtime, but this prep time, some of them become qualified scuba divers to deal with, you know, some of the different pressures. You know, some of them go on to understand kind of military survival training. They then they go on to being exposed to high and low atmospheric pressures. And then you get the vomit comet. Yeah, the vomit comet's just a treat. And you do it after lunch. And no, um, so what the Vomit Comet is, is basically a machine that helps you simulate zero gravity conditions for like periods up to around like 20 seconds. It like does this through like almost manipulating Earth's gravity to kind of have like that really short amount of weightlessness. And another thing that you probably, you know, see a lot is kind of like the centrifuge where the spinning machine, you know, it'll have you like spinning around in like a, almost like a gyroscope. And you'll also have to do like interesting little techniques in the fact of, you know, you're spinning around in this thing and you then have to repeat the numbers back to this person that's telling you on the outside, but in reverse order. So let's say you're spinning around and I say 782. So then what you have to repeat back to me is 287 and then you go on like that. And so I find that, you know, the training is not obviously average training for anything anybody's ever done. When's the last time that you, you know, had to strap into the vomit comet for any reason? Truly something else. Um, There's no way I don't think you'd be prepared for or ready for it. Just you learn over time and prep for it. And then once you graduate, it still takes years to get missions. And fun little fact here is once you graduate and say you do get a mission, a spacesuit, an astronaut suit, costs a whopping $12 million per suit, which is an, the most expensive wardrobe I think I've ever heard of. But it makes sense if you know that's your livelihood once you get up there in your $12 million suit. But, you know, when you're not in the suit and you're waiting for your mission, they typically serve as the Capcom or the capsule communicator and mission control and help fellow astronauts who are already out on their missions and in space and communicate with them and relay different messages to, you know, help them come a little bit more comfortable with the communication ways and, you know, what the astronauts may be feeling, may not be feeling while in space. And it portrays that you know, if these rappers really had it, they'd be talking about their spacesuit that they just got blinged out. One point that I want to point out, too, is the cost of the spacesuits, $12 million. The amount of pay they get per year is somewhere between, and astonishingly, I'm, I feel like people would imagine it's higher, but somewhere between about like 65000 to 100 grand or so a year as being like an active duty astronaut. And so you think that these people getting shot into the like the final frontier would be getting paid a little bit or, you know, you know, you think that they're like, you know, uh, hazard pay would go up a bit. But these people are aren't getting paid hundreds and thousands of dollars. They are getting paid, you know, like what you think an average government worker would get paid. 
Yeah, uh, very, very surprising what they get paid, especially when you count in some of the effects that they see. You know, in the short term, they see weightlessness. They kind of get confused of their sense of what's up and what's down, what's left and what's right. They also kind of lose track of limbs relatively, kind of, you know, not necessarily feeling the gravity all around you. You In that weightlessness, you kind of forget, you know, where your left foot is floating to or your right hand. Um, and then they'll move, you know, they also face some long-term effects such as, you know, running into calcium deficiency, you know, muscular atrophy. And that's why you see on the space station, they try to incorporate some sort of exercise to keep some of that that muscle there so that they don't dwindle down into nothing while in their, while in space. They also see, you know, changes in eye pressure, which can affect vision. They could potentially lose their taste, which I thought was the most surprising of them all, is that you could go into space, kind of food starts tasting bland, and then boom, you don't have any taste. And I knew that fact from the beginning, and I think it was just because, um, you know, Gordon Ramsay cannot afford to go to space because if he loses his taste, we're all screwed. So, I mean, it's just not a height requirement as well. It's a lifestyle requirement. And the fact that, you know, these people are risking their health when they go up to space. When you're in space, obviously, with zero gravity and less pressure, your body stops working as hard. Your your blood kind of, it doesn't, your heart doesn't need to pump as hard to like have the blood move around. It kind of like does it on its own. Muscles obviously don't have to hold up to the pressure or the gravitational pull that Earth does. And so things start changing. And so that's why that they, they work out about two hours a day to kind of hold their muscular and body frame. So when they come back to Earth, they're not just puddles and kind of like sink into the ground. That's the other thing too, is once they come back down um, after those effects and, you know, the some psychological effects of being by yourself off of earth, um, isolated and having high stress, high stress to maintain your duties and performance, poor quality of sleep, it takes them months to get back to normal and, you know, day-to-day activities after coming down from you know, a week in space or some people's cases, you know, 160 days. Um, It takes a lot of time and careful um, tracking of what they're doing to make sure that they're healthy and ready to move on back to the normal day-to-day activities on Earth, including gravity. Like, Julian, could you imagine that like your dinners consist of you, like literally like you can like rocket a piece of food and it'll travel across the room and then you you know, jump and chase that food and eat it out of midair. Like that obviously is way funner than what we have to do on Earth. I think it'd be a little weird to adjust back to Earth. But, you know, I think the best way to adjust back to Earth um, after learning about astronauts is, you know, browsing through the off the top podcast categories and podcasts and, you know, seeing what's been going on through Earth, through Jordan and I. What I really want to say is like, you know, we so like we appreciate you guys so much for, you know, giving us feedback and listening and giving us reviews and things of that nature. Like, honestly, you guys are awesome. You guys are out of this world. My special stars. And, you know, it just makes it way easier, way funner and, you know, way more rewarding to do this with you guys uh, along with us in this journey. Extremely ecstatic about your support. You know, maybe down the line, we'll become the first podcast from space. You know, speaking from mine, I don't know if Jordan wants to go into space, but, you know, the limits are endless. Absolutely. And I don't care how tall I am, NASA. (laughs) I'm getting up there. So (laughs) let it be known. 
Any final words, Jordan? Uh, this is one small step for me and Julian, but one large step for the podcasting industry. Thanks, guys. Peace. Peace.